0: We are turning to the Word of God, uh, back again to where we've been reading from tonight, that is Second Peter and the Chapter three. Second Peter and the Chapter three, and we're looking in the main at verse eleven and verse twelve under the title Have You the Hope of Heaven. Have you the hope of heaven? Verse 11, saying then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And that is simply holy living, not just holy talking. The word conversation means our behavior. Looking for and hasting on to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And with the Word of God open before us, we'll bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again we bring ourselves to Thy feet. Uh, We are on thy footstool, thou art on the throne. We acknowledge that thou art the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Thou art the creator of all things. We therefore, being thy creatures, are responsible to thee. Sometimes uh, men in the world imagine that, yeah, they're responsible to nobody but themselves. Uh, They are their own boss. They set their own rules. And they, with a great act of bravado, will say that we will live with the consequences of that. But Lord, we know that rooted within us is that conscience, that direction finder that was put there into the human person. And Lord, we pray that our conscience, it only ever can function properly when educated by the Word of God. We pray that it will be well educated by the Word of God. We know that the conscience can be dimmed and dulled, and men will do their best to silence the voice of conscience. But Lord, we pray that in every soul over this vast city of Belfast, may the consciences of men and women spring into life, and may they hear the trumpet tone of the truth. Of God's own holy and precious Word, help us, Lord, to listen to it tonight. Maybe glean uh, value from it. Maybe know blessing. Maybe find challenge in it. And Lord, we don't ever want to be uh, the Old Testament expression for Thy people whenever they'd become lukewarm, was they were settled on their lees. They were just happy where they were. They had find a little comfort zone and they didn't want to leave it, don't dislodge us, don't disturb us. We are happy where we are. Lord, may we never be happy where we are. As thy people, maybe know there are such spots and sti- sins and stains that are still not washed, that are still need upon our heart and conscience to come every day for a fresh cleansing in Thy precious blood. For those that have never yet been to Calvary, not for the first time, we pray, Lord, that I will bring them to the cross tonight and bring them savingly into the arms of our blessed and welcoming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Answer prayer, do us good tonight. Pour out Thy Spirit upon us, we ask, in Jesus' name, and to Thine eternal glory alone, we pray. Amen. Some time ago, a preacher by the name of Charles E. Fuller, born in 1887, died in 1968, not a terrible long time ago, he announced that he was going to preach the next Sunday on the topic of heaven. And during the week leading up to that Sunday, he received a letter from an old man associated with the congregation, and that old man himself was very ill. Part of the letter that Fuller received read like this Next Sunday, you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land because I have held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price, but the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. For more than half a century, I've been sending materials out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me, which will never need to be remodeled nor repaired, because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and will never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for they rest on the Rock of Ages— Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors, for no vicious person can enter that land where my dwelling stands. And then he concluded his letter by saying I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home in Los Angeles, California, but I have no assurance that I shall be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, no return coupon, and no permit for baggage. Yes, I am all ready to go, and I may not be here while you are talking next Sunday evening, but I shall meet you there someday. Tell me. Have you got that assurance, and can you speak that final line that that man put in his letter to the preacher Fuller on that occasion? I may not be there because I've no guarantee that I will be there. In fact, I feel heaven calling within my heart, but I will meet you there someday. On that man's journey through life, he had heaven very firmly fixed in his eye. He had a real focus on heaven. He lived in the light of a bliss-filled eternity, and with good reason as well, because, let's hear it, our Lord Jesus Christ did exactly the same thing. What do we read about him? In Hebrews 12, in the verse 2, and in the verse 3, we are told that we ought to be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for… The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He went to that cross. He endured the cruelty of that terrible crucifixion there. He endured intense shame and scoffing all that surrounded it. He endured false accusations from big sinners and misrepresentations all the way because they had him there on trumped up charges. And those sinful men directed all the bile they had against him, but he endured it all. Why? Simply because he had his divine eye trained on the glory and on the joy that was beyond. And you and I, we're encouraged to do the same. That third verse in Hebrews 12 says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied. That's not just a possibility, that's almost an inevitability, because we do get wearied in this life. We do get cast down. We do feel and we stumble and we trip and we fall. And we have to bring ourselves up and dust ourselves down. And by the grace of God, keep going. We are wearied. We become faint in our minds. Certainly we do. But Paul is saying, when you do, when you do this, then train your eye on Christ, who trained his eye on the glory, the prize of heaven beyond. And of course, we have all of those people in Hebrews 12 and verse 1 and 2 and 3. And though not much is said about heaven today, we have that great cloud of witnesses. They're there in the glory. They have made it before us, maybe some out of our own family, some of our loved ones. They've gone on before them, and they're telling us, by their life's experience, you too can endure. You too can break through all the barriers and get heaven. And are we saying to them, yes, by the grace of God, we will see you soon. Second Peter chapter 3, the verse 11 and the verse 12 is where we're going to anchor our thoughts here tonight. First main port of call is this, the passion for heaven. The passion for for heaven. If you look with me at 2 Peter 3 in verse 12, you'll read looking for, and hasting on to the coming of the day of God, looking for and hasting on to the coming of the day of God. The first Protestant bishop in the city of Liverpool was John Charles Wright evangelical bishop in the Anglican tradition, he did say this, thanks be to God, this life is not all. I know and am persuaded there is a glorious rest beyond the tomb. This earth is only the training school for eternity. These graves are but the stepping stones and the halfway house to heaven." William Perkins, going back 200 years before Charles Ryle, he was one of the Puritan preachers, Perkins, and he gave us a wonderful thought about the endlessness of eternity, he said. Suppose the whole world were a sea, and that when every thousand years expired, a bird was carried away or drink up only one drop of it. In the process of time, it will come to pass that the sea, though very huge, shall be dried up, but yet many thousand millions of years must be passed before this can be done now. And here's his application. If a man should enjoy happiness in heaven only for the space of time in which the sea is drying up, carried away by the bird, drop by drop, he would think his case most happy and blessed. But behold, the elect shall enjoy the kingdom of heaven not only for that time, but when that is ended, they shall enjoy it as long again. And when all that is done, they shall be as far from ending of this than they were at the beginning. Sometimes we sing Newton's words when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, and Perkins takes that up so many more levels, millions of years in terms of time, when we've been there, the endlessness of eternity. It's a long time to get things wrong now, and to miss out through that endless time to come. But we agree with Ryle, and we're more than happy to side alongs with Perkins here, that heaven is unending. And yet, of course, there's a tendency, its in your heart and mine as well, to be totally earthbound and stay tied to and rooted to the things of time and sense, and to go about our business as if there was nothing beyond this scene of time. We get sucked up in the prevailing thought, and the world its thought is. Well, Psalm forty-nine in verse eleven tells us exactly how the world thinks. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places of all generations as if they were here forever and ever and ever and ever and never going to leave. I know reality is always against that. We can see with our own eyes we don't live forever, but that's how people act. That's the thought process. And yet in verse 12 and verse 14 of the same Psalm 49 we have these words, nevertheless man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. Death shall feed on them, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. These bodies of ours are only temporary buildings. The planning approval that we have been granted, all of us, from the head office in heaven to allow us to be here, to occupy a spot on God's globe for a certain number of years, that planning approval is time limited, going to run out for all of us. We have no warrant to erect a permanent structure down here. Just like Abraham recorded of him in Hebrews 11, the verse 9 and 10. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles. Nothing permanent there. Why? For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so it is with us. Here we seek no continuing city because we're not going to be here forever, but we do seek one to come. And you know what? If we forget that, and if we get carried off in the current of life, And if we immerse ourselves in the things of time and the things of sense alone, and if we begin to dig down deeper foundations that indicate, oh, we're here for the long haul. We're going to have a long association with life. We're going to be here for virtually ever and ever. God steps in. For the child of God, trials arrive. The trials of God are measured out by Him, sent to us by Him. Why? Why? To make us depend less upon our own strength and more upon his? Yes, absolutely. To purify us from sin and wing us away from the world and its ways and the love of the world and the love of sin. Yes, of course, trials can come for that reason as well. To increase the desires and the longings in our heart for heaven. Yes, trials come absolutely for that reason too. We're surrounded by so many smiling, winking pleasures that are telling us you need to try us or you'll never be fully satisfied that if we are not obliged to sip from the cup of sorrow and the cup of suffering and get some dejection along the way and find disappointment here and there. If we didn't have these things, stones on the road, twists and turns, we would forget our heavenly home and we'd do what Lot did. We'd pitch our tents in the direction of Sodom and say, that'll do for me. I'm happy here The trial, trouble, tribulation, Lifts our eyes and her mind and her heart off things that are earthly and empty and perverse and perishable, and that causes us to contemplate with relish the house of the many mansions that God is preparing for all of those who love Him. Takes my eyes off only the earthly and makes me contemplate again the heavenly. Now well, none of us is going to push her way to the front of the queue with a begging bowl in her hand and eagerly cry to the Lord, Lord, pour some trials into my cup or my bowl here. Uh, give me some trouble that will help me to refocus. That'll be foolish. Chastening is never an enjoyable experience. Nevertheless, it can activate that hidden grace. And it can chop down many a secret seed of sin. And no matter how heavy that chastening lies on our backs, the words of Second Corinthians 4, verse 17, they are always applicable for our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Because what do we know? The final night of weeping will be over. The last weave of trouble will someday rule. The ultimate groan of pain will be pressed out of our lips one day, and then we enter into the peace that passes all understanding, defies all measuring, and knows no ending. Heaven will be ours. If we suffer, this is what the Bible says, Second 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. What a comfort that is. For the end of the journey. Old Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford, and if you travel from the ferry into Scotland and you're headed for England, you'll see the little curve that you can detour off the main road, such as the main road is, and it'll be marked Anwath. Take the little turn for Anwath. Pass the Church of Scotland, church, get to a ruin along the way and just get into that ruin. I absolutely love spending just a little time there on the way through because that's in that ruin. That's where Samuel Rutherford used to minister. He wrote letters all around the community and some of the castles, the people in those castles to whom he wrote those castles are still there, albeit ruins as well. But one of his hymns or words… Uh, based upon his life and ministry, and put into him by Mrs. Cousins amid the shades of evening. Wild sinks, life's lingering sand going through the egg timer here. I heal the glory dawning in Emmanuel's land. Death for him was not a tragedy, but a victory going into the arms of Christ. And surely, surely, there will be those in this meeting and you'll be determined before God as much as you can be determined. That's what I would want as well. Even old wicked, ungodly, treacherous, Balaam appealed in life, oh, that I could die the death of the righteous, that my last den could be like his, because he knew, where the righteous were going beyond the grave, and he wanted to be there. He didn't get there. Don't you make the same mistake. John Newton said, our home will make amends for all our toil while on the road, the passion for heaven. Then the purity for heaven. You'll see in our text as well in 2 Peter 3 and verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved... What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And you'll find that verse reinforced by others here. 2 Peter 3 and 14, drop down a few verses. Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace without spot. And Blemus, drop down to verse 17 and 18 as well. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye knew these things before beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grew in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, all of those... In verse 14, 17, 18, and where we started, verse 11, there, they are all warnings, and they are commands, and they are entreaties, and they are exhortations from God to you and to me. And they boil down essentially to one thing, strive after holiness. But let me make myself 100% clear on this. Holiness is not some kind of an archaic garment that became threadbare as men like Enoch, who walked with God, had this testimony that he pleased God, became threadbare after he set it down, or even Elisha, of whom it was said of him, behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passes by us continually, or maybe even that white bearded worshiper in the temple who was waiting for the appearance of the Messiah for so, so many years. Simeon, and it was said of Simeon, he was just and devout. He was a holy character in his day and generation. Well, holiness didn't die out with those men, nor can it and nor should it. Every believer child of God should be characterized by holiness. That's our target. And far from looking upon it like a piece of clothing that can be pulled off the hanger out of the wardrobe and draped over her shoulders today and then put back in and discarded tomorrow, we must get to grips with the fact that holiness should be the constant, prominent badge of our lives. In Luke one seventy four seventy five, 75, we read, serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of your life. Second Timothy two and the verse nineteen. For some reason, probably because it was a set text in the preaching class in Bible college, so many many years ago. Obviously, one of the first sermons I ever preached was in Second Timothy two and the verse nineteen. Probably have never preached it since it would have been so bad. But Second Timothy 2 and 19, the message is, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Hebrews 12 and 14, follow holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. First Timothy, First Peter rather, 1 and verse 15, he which hath told you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, Combine all the verses. Take others, if you wish, of a similar tenor dotted all through the Word of God. And you're coming to this one thought. Depart from iniquity. Pursue after holiness in every area of your life and at all times. That's the teaching of God's Word. Dr. Brotus once told the story of a young girl who applied in his church for membership. Were you a sinner before this change of which you now speak? An elderly deacon asked her, Oh, yes, sir, she replied. I was a sinner. Well, he said, are you a sinner now? Yes, sir, she said. I feel a greater sinner than ever now. And then the deacon, probing further, he said, Well, what change has there been in you? The girl said, I don't know how to explain it, but here's the best I can do. I used to be a sinner running after sin, but now I hope I'm a sinner running from sin. Is that your testimony? Are you on the run from sin? racing after purity of life, you and I should be are we serious in our profession to be a child of the Lord? Do we really think we can be reaching out with one hand for heaven and the other be living like hell? That thought is an abomination, absurd. Robert Boswell had it right when he said, with such a blessed hope in view, that's the hope of heaven we would more holy be, more like our risen, glorious Lord, whose face we soon shall see and maybe get it right in our day-to-day living as we march onward and upward to the Zion of God. So we thought, first of all, of the passion for heaven. Secondly, the purity for heaven. Finally, tonight, the proclamation of heaven, the proclamation of heaven. Can we? Here's the question. Can we casually, thoughtlessly, mercilessly skip along to heaven? Feeling, yes, my back pocket or inside pocket, there's a passport to the glory in there. It's all secure. It's all tied up. It's all settled and signed, sealed and delivered. Can we do that while multitudes on every side of us? are plunging down into hell? Can we strut around with a, an "I'm I'm alright Jack kind of feeling and a shrug of the shoulders attitude and merely point to the fact that those sinners that we know and those sinners we associate with they have a do not disturb sign pinned to their chest. That's a reason why I and you and nobody else can go up to them and bring the message of the gospel to them. They don't want to know so we don't do it. They need to be disturbed. They need to be alerted to their danger. We did. And so do they. They need to be told of the terrors of that aching, unfathomable void, the pit of hell. They need to be stirred up, shaken out of their slumber and sleep of sin, and electrified into facing up to this eternal crisis that's stirring them in the eye if they continue in the way they're on. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards from America pictured the unconverted, and in that sermon, quite a lengthy one, he pictured them dangling hopelessly above a wide bottomless pit suspended by the fragile strand of life which could snap at any moment and plunge them down into the dreadful fierceness of God's fury. And Edward said, in part, here's how it is. Natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great toward them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise. To hold them up for a moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. And they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. Do we believe Edwards was right in what he preached? We should allow his words and words like them and the teaching of Scripture on the subject of hell, particularly our Lord's warnings to penetrate down into our minds, to grip our hearts, to awaken our souls, to propel our voices and our feet into earnest action in an effort to reach out to the lost and the perishing. Let's make no mistake about it. God is sure to judge sin. The words that we have in our chapter here, 2 Peter 3, verse 5 to 7, are proof positive of that. For this they willingly are ignorant of, but by, by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There's been a flood of water. Archaeology and geology verifies that, despite the scoffing of men. But this world today is held in the hand of God for a time of fire. And for a time the wrath is held back. And the result of what Edwards here has called the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, and unobliged forbearance of an incensed God, he holds back, shows patience. Second Peter three, verse nine and verse fifteen, he's long suffering to usward. Account that the long suffering of our God is salvation. But this time of God holding back and forbearing, this period of restraint, this moment or two when the brakes are put on, this vehicle of irresistible and inevitable judgment, what does it do for you? It gives you space to repent. That's the only worthwhile use you can make of the space you have, of the time that God is giving you, that while this wrath is being held back, God is giving you an opportunity to turn from your sin and to run to Christ. Are you doing it? Some years ago, in a wealthy residential district in Richmond, Virginia, some residents banded together and they started to complain about a church in their locality. Just a small Christian church, but they said, it's singing is really annoying us. And they drafted up a petition, got signatures on the petition. They were going to present that petition to the city council whose neighborhood the church was situated in. They brought their petition to a Jewish resident to get a signature, and he read it through. And then he pushed it back, and he refused to sign. And they're looking at him, well, why not? Everybody else is signing it. You know, the way somebody comes to your door with a petition, you haven't even heard of the issue, and you almost feel obligated to sign it anyway. Of course, we shouldn't. But he said, I can't sign it. And he explained, if I believed, as those Christians do, that my Messiah had come, I would shout it from the housetops and on every street in Richmond, and nobody could stop me. An infidel confronted a servant of Jesus Christ with these words, if I believed what you claim to believe, that this world is careering out of control and the way to hell, I would crawl on my hands and knees over broken glass around this city telling them all that Christ alone can save. What are we doing? What are we doing? We're going home to glory soon to see the city bright, to walk the golden streets of heaven and bask in God's own light. But some of you are out of Christ and held by many a snare. We cannot, cannot leave you lost and lone. We want you over there. Do those words not challenge us? Not stir us up? Not send a shiver even down our spine? Do they not shake us to our core? I wish they would. Your heart and mine. We need not only to be sure that we are headed for heaven. We need to live in a way that proves it. And if we are living in a way that proves it, we'll be determined to get others to go with us. The passion for heaven, the purity for heaven, the proclamation of heaven.